0: Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. On Friday, a fee. On Sunday, a king. Late down. Welcome to Epiphany's Sunday Sermons, a podcast ministry of Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Our church exists to help people discover and rediscover the love of God in the Christian gospel. To learn more about our church, visit our website at epiphanyligonier.org. Friends, it's Epiphany Sunday. It's Epiphany Sunday today. Uh, It's a joy to be with you on Epiphany Sunday. We are Epiphany Anglican Fellowship. So even though our numbers are light today, this is our day. It is Epiphany Sunday. And if you're not church calendar people, if this isn't something that's part of your faith, uh, then that's okay. It's not necessary. But uh, the Feast of Epiphany is a, a church holiday. It's more celebrated globally than it is locally here in the States. But here's a primer for you to understand what we talk about when we talk about this Feast of the Epiphany. Uh, Christians have been celebrating the Feast of the Epiphany uh, almost since the beginning. We have evidence from letters of early Christians writing uh, that after the 12 days of Christmas, right? Where we all give each other partridges and pear trees. uh, After the 12 days of Christmas, um, there's uh, January 5th, they call that the 12th night, 12 days after Christmas. January 6th is the Feast of the Epiphany. It's kind of the last hurrah uh, before we uh, finish up the holidays, and uh, Christians have celebrated this in the past. Uh, and there are, are um, certainly a number of traditions all over the world. In this, there's, there's the king cakes, uh, where you can get a cake with the baby Jesus um, baked into it. I know that's very strange, but you can do that. And uh, there are special songs that people sing. And in some countries, little kids will wear crowns and go sing around those songs in the neighborhood. Uh, in some countries, the, the kids, they leave out Grass and water for the camels of the wise men. And if they do that, then they wake up the next morning and find little thank you gifts of candy in their shoes. So all over the world, uh, maybe except for America, the Epiphany is a significant holiday. And what we celebrate when we celebrate Epiphany is this sort of transition story between the birth of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus, which is the arrival of the three wise men these three wise men. You know what an epiphany is, right? An epiphany is a sudden realization, that aha moment, that eureka moment that you get when you finally understand something that you didn't before. That's what an epiphany is. The epiphany, which we observe today, is a theological aha moment, a connecting of the dots. In which we learn something about God that we previously did not know before. That's what we talk about when we talk about the Epiphany. And so, when these wise men arrive from the East, giving gifts to worship and pay homage to Mary's baby, um, it's not just a story that says something about uh, sort of who Jesus is, although it does say that. It's not just a fun story that lets us, you know, put out water and grass for the camels. Uh, It's not just our sort of ending of the Christmas holiday. The epiphany story, it tells us something about the nature of God, something we didn't know before. Uh, Paul in Ephesians 3 today called it the great mystery of the cosmos that was kept hidden but has been revealed. And that's what we're going to learn today. What is the great epiphany of epiphany? What is it that we learn about God that we didn't know before? And so to do that, I want to focus in on our Magi. Our Magi, our wise men figures here, are going to be the key to understanding what it is exactly about God that we know and we learn that we didn't know before. And that's what we're going to talk about today. I want to talk about who the wise men were. So that's where we're going to start today. We're going to start with the wise men. And you've heard them called wise men. You've heard them called three kings. Some traditions, you may know them, uh, they they gave them names in the medieval ages, like Balthazar and Casper and that sort of thing. And uh, Erase that from your mind for today, that those things are important. Uh, pretend like you know nothing about the wise men and let me fill in some gaps for you. Uh, because we call them wise men. We call them maybe the three kings. Uh, but there is actually something deeper here that we need to, to learn about these men, which is that the Greek word for what they are is not wise men specifically. It is not three kings specifically. The Greek word is magi. And maybe you've heard that before, that these are the Magi from the East. And that's something that's really remarkable. Do you know what a Magi actually is? Because it's a very specific thing. It's not just sort of three guys who wear turbans and royal robes and ride camels. A Magi is something very specific. In the ancient world, you see in ancient times, Magi were a cadre of advisors that the kings and emperors of the ancient world set aside to help them make decisions about how to run their kingdom. And these magi, they, were, they had sort of one foot in the political world. They were politically savvy, and they could help the king do diplomacy and things like that. But also, the flip side of that is that these magi dabbled in all sorts of divination and spiritual things in the ancient world. Some examples would be uh, some of the more augurs. Do you know what an augur is? An augur is someone who tries to, just, to, to understand the future by looking at the flight paths of birds. And this was a very popular thing in the ancient world. You'd have these very well appointed bird watchers. They would say, um, uh, Wise men, magi, I'm about to go to war with this country. Help me understand if that's a good idea. And some of the wise men were augurs and they'd go out into the woods or the fields nearby and they would watch. The birds migrating. They'd watch the birds fly across the field. And they would read the birds, um, and they would, they would then turn and tell the king, hey, I've read the birds. The birds give us a sign. The sign says, go for it. You're going to win. You'll be victorious. Another uh, thing that these magi might have been trained in was horoscopy. Make sure I get that right. Horospacy. Horospice. Horospice, that's what it is. Horospice, which is when you wanted to tell the future by reading the entrails of a slaughtered animal. So not exactly the, the cleanest way of telling the future, but you would perform an animal sacrifice and then you look at the, uh, the entrails of the animal and then you would tell the future. So these were men who would help the king out by being politically savvy and trying to understand the rest of the world, they would use um, Hirospike, they'd use uh, Augury, they'd use uh, astro- astronomy, uh, or astrology is probably the better word. Astrology. They'd look at the zodiac and the signs and the signs and the stars and the skies and the constellations, and they'd say, We've looked at the stars, O king, and here's what the stars have told us about how long your drought is going to last. These were people who would read tea leaves, any sort of way that you could try to think of in the ancient world to see into the future, these were the guys you turned to. So that's what the Magi is, this sort of advisory, political, priestly class who had one foot in the spiritual world, one foot in the political world, who were trying to help their kings make wise decisions. This isn't the first time we've run into Magi in the Bible, by the way. We've run into them before. Uh, So maybe you've been in Genesis and you remember uh, that Joseph... Um, interpreted the dreams of King Pharaoh, and he got made the second in command of Egypt. He was fulfilling this Magi role, because on the one hand, um, Joseph was very smart. He could run a, run a business, as it were, so he had one foot in that political world. But on the other hand, he could interpret dreams. He had one foot in the spiritual world. And so Joseph, in the courts of Pharaoh, um, rises to this position and becomes, in essence, a Magi for the Pharaoh. He's not the only one that does this either. Same thing happens to uh, to, to Daniel in the book of Daniel. Um, it's a very funny story because uh, the king Nebuchadnezzar turns to his court magi. He doesn't trust them very much. And he says to his magi in the court, he says, I need a dream interpretation. And the magi are like, sure, tell us your dream. And and Her, uh, Nebuchadnezzar says to them, he says, um, well, if you're really good at your job, you could tell me the dream and also tell me the interpretation. And all the magi are like, uh, maybe. And it's. Daniel, who steps forward and says, I know the dream and I know the interpretation. And then he gets promoted to being basically the second in command, the head of the Magi. And so when you look at the Old Testament, right, there, that combination of spiritually wise um, and, and maybe some divination thrown in there and also political savvy advising to the king, that's who these Magi are coming from the east. They're not just sort of generic wise men who happen to to look at the stars one night and make an educated guess. I imagine the conversation would have gone something like this. You know, It would have been something like, uh, hey, king, boss, maybe in Iran, probably somewhere in Iran, Persia, somewhere there. Hey, king, um, we've been watching the stars, looking for signs. There's a new star in the sky. We found a new star. That means a new king has been born, and we've done some trigonometry and figured out it's probably in like Judea, in Israel. So uh, why don't we get a jump start on some diplomacy with the new king by going to give his family some gold and frankincense and myrrh, and like we'll come bring the gifts. And the king says, you know, that sounds like a great idea. So you can be the delegation to the new king. You guys go on ahead, and we're gonna make peace with this new king before he even takes the throne. And that's something like the conversation that may have happened. That part's not in the Bible. But you know, that's what starts this journey, is that the king of the ancient world, the king of the east, um, sends a delegation. We keep seeing three wise men everywhere, by the way. The text doesn't actually say there are three, three magi. Um, the text um, it says that there were some magi. So imagine not just three guys on camels. Imagine a whole procession of people. Not just three magi, but imagine a whole caravan with servants and bodyguards and um, royal advisors, and maybe more than three magi, and some wagons to cart it all, coming into Jerusalem, into the palace of King Herod from far away, and saying, hey, we heard the new king's been born, and we've come to worship and pay him homage. So that's what we're looking at this morning. Those are the magi. These are people who, maybe we don't know 100% what they did, but there are two things that everyone says. One, they have zero understanding of Judaism in any particular capacity. And two, their vocations, the scrying, looking into the future, astrology, reading the tea leaves, um, auguring, that stuff was forbidden in the Bible. So they weren't just sort of unfamiliar with Judaism. They lived a life completely different from Judaism. Old Testament and new, they both agree, right? The Old Testament says, don't get into witchcraft and sorcery. Don't try to divine the future. If you do that, um, you're missing the whole point because you don't understand that God is with you. He dwells among you. You are God's people in the Old Testament. Not only do you have the word of the Lord in the law, but on top of that, um, God is close by in the temple. You can go to the temple or you can go to the tabernacle. You can worship God. He's right there. And in the New Testament, the Christians say, look, we don't need sorcery. We don't need magi. We don't need divination because the Holy Spirit dwells within all of us. We have direct access to the all-controlling force that governs the universe. Why are we looking into animal entrails to figure it out when we have the word of God and the Holy Spirit? So Old Testament and New Testament, uh, there's this unified skepticism, rejection of divination and, and magic and that sort of thing precisely because we have a direct relationship with the one who controls all of those spiritual forces. It's, um, it doesn't make sense to go that route. And so uh, what happens is um, we find out something about the God of the universe because what does he do? He extends a divine invitation He extends a divine invitation to people who have zero understanding of who he is and who are, in fact, doing the exact opposite of what he wants. God extends this divine invitation to come and meet the baby boy, Jesus. Well, at this point, he's probably more a toddler. Uh, Come meet the king of the world, the king of the Jews, the king of the world, the newborn king, Come to Bethlehem, will come to Jerusalem, come and meet him. And it's remarkable, isn't it? Because this sign that is given is only a sign that the God of the universe can give. What is the sign? The sign is a star. Just so happens that these were stargazers, astrologers. They knew those arts they were looking And what does God do to get their attention? He completely reorganizes the cosmos. He puts a new star in the sky to do it. We have seen the star rise. This is a moving star, the text tells us, one that guides the wise men to the magi, to um, the baby boy Jesus. God creates this star, the star that comes up. It's a new star, a star that symbolizes a king, a star that wasn't there before. Like, God, who made the heavens and the earth, shifted the heavens, (laughs) completely, so that these three or more uh, magi would find out who Jesus is. Isn't that remarkable to think about? That God wanted to reach these particular magi, and so he created something new in the cosmos. He shifted the heavens. He created um, bends in space-time that didn't exist. Gravity and light and physics in the universe were changed so that these guys would know Jesus was born. It says something about the love of God that he would go that far. And it's not that God doesn't want these men to kind of, you know, sidestep scripture, right? Because where, do the, where does the star initially lead the Magi? At least into Jerusalem. And then when they get to Jerusalem, what do they have to do? They go, we've heard the new king has been born. And Herod says, uh. And he has to call upon who? The scribes. The people who know the scriptures. And it's only after you know flipping through the scriptures to say, oh, wait, he's probably in Bethlehem that they can make it the last leg of the journey. And so the invitation to these magi from the heavens is absolutely remarkable. God changes the night sky and brings into a knowledge of the scripture uh, these magi, who then, after following the words of scripture... Land at the feet of Jesus. So, what do we learn about God in the story? What do we learn about God? What is, what is the epiphany? What do we know about God in the story that we don't know before? The thing that we learn is that this is not just the king of the Jews we're talking about with Jesus, this is the king of the whole world. This is the king of the whole world. This is not just some sort of in-house new king Uh, for one particular people, the one geographic little area called Judea, um, a couple of miles, well, the the big region surrounding the Sea of Galilee and and the Dead Sea. This is not just this. This little baby boy, uh, born in a barn, as they say, um, was for the whole world. And that is the great epiphany. Again, that's what Paul talks about in Ephesians 3. He says, there's this great mystery, this thing we didn't know before, which was that God wants not just Israel to be saved, he wants the whole entire world to be saved, Jew and Gentile together. And that first reveals itself when these pagan, animal-sacrificing, bird-watching, tea-leaf-reading horoscope-writing pagan priest politicians from the East show up, knock on Mary's door, and say, hey, we heard a king's been born here. Can we come and pay him homage? That is why we call it the epiphany. Because what we realize is that the love of God is not just for one people, not just for one ethnicity, not just for one um, geographic region. It's for everybody in the entire world. And we know that from the very beginning. And God goes so far to make this known that he goes specifically into the questionable pagan astrology religion, astrology religion, the horoscope religion, and gives these wise men, these magi, the breadcrumbs that lead them to Jesus. And isn't that remarkable that God would go that far to bring somebody into his fold? I think the person who who writes the best on this recently uh, is Esau Macaulay. I don't know if you know who he is. I've quoted him from the pulpit before. Um, Esau Macaulay, he's actually a member of our denomination. He is Anglican like we are. Um, He teaches at Wheaton College, um, and he is also a contributing writer writer to the New York Times. And so if you're going to have somebody write for the the, the Christmas holiday in the New York Times— pretty good bet to find uh, someone who's an ordained minister, uh, who's a decent writer, uh, who's a contributing editor. And so the New York Times asked Esau McCauley to submit a a Christmas reflection for the newspaper. And if you get the New York Times, which, you know, or if you Google it online, however you come across it, um, his reflection was less an essay, less a, less a, it was, it was a sermon, and I don't know how many sermons make it into the New York Times, but this was certainly a sermon. I want to read from it to you now because he understand Esau understands the length that God will go in his love. And I'm going to close with this reflection. The length, uh, the distance that God would go uh, to bring these lost sheep into his fold. Uh, the epiphany that God is the shepherd who goes out and brings home those who are lost, no matter who they are, no matter where they are. I think Esau Macaulay understands this. He says this. When I was growing up, one toy captured my imagination. Power Wheels Jeep. (laughs) It was the Christmas present that seemed out of my reach because of my family's limited finances. The commercials on Saturday morning cartoons were a constant reminder of what I would never have. Those 30-second segments, the Jeeps, the tiny Corvettes, were driven by blonde kids zooming through neighborhoods filled with green grass and nice homes. But every Christmas, I woke up to find that we were still, in fact, poor, and I would not be receiving my Power Wheels through the hood. Until the Christmas that changed everything. One year, my mother, my siblings, and I made our way to Grandma's house to enjoy Christmas dinner with our extended family. As we approached the home, I saw a red and blue Power Wheels Jeep sitting in the driveway with a red bow attached. My grandmother had a gambling addiction and played the illegal lottery that operated in black neighborhoods in Huntsville and Alabama. This particular year, things had apparently gone quite well. She had used her winnings to buy many of her numerous grandkids the gifts of our dreams. That is how I got my power wheels. I've always considered the, the lottery a Christmas miracle, evidence that God had not forgotten the little black boys and girls in my corner of the world. But as I've aged, I've been tempted to reconsider. Are these merely the pious memories of a naive child looking for hope wherever he could find it? Is it wrong to see God's presence in a gift brought with money of questionable origins? My doubts about Christmas, my Christmas miracle surge within me. I'm somewhat comforted by the story of the Magi. The wise men who visited Jesus sometime after he was born. And Esau goes on to talk about how uh, some of the same things we talked about, how the Magi had no way of knowing God, how God went through this questionable means that he forbids in other places. God reaches to these Magi through um, horoscopes and astrology, Um, how uh, God moved the stars of the universe to welcome in these people who otherwise would have had no uh, contact with him whatsoever. And in the same way, he says, look, the same way that God moved the stars in heaven so that these men, uh, these magi, could find Jesus. Uh, He says, I think God moved the power balls in that lottery so that I could find Jesus, or at least have that hope. He says this, I didn't ride the power wheels for very long. In the language of the Walmart brand jeans of the era, I was husky, and I soon became too heavy for the vehicle. But that Christmas day, my Jeep rumbled across the grass like chariots of old. There was no bounce to my hair as the wind blew through it, like the blonde kids of the commercials. My low-cut fade was decidedly stationary, but I felt seen and heard by God, if only for a moment. Dante famously described the love of God as love which moves the sun and other stars. It happened for the Magi, it happened for Esau Macaulay. I wonder what it might look like to happen for you prayer for all of us as we begin 2022 together is that we find God's love in these improbable places. That we would see the invitation of Jesus to draw close to him in new and fresh ways that we may have yet missed so far. Um, That we would have these moments, the eureka moments, that God's love is for everyone. That we do not need to slaughter the sheep of the field and look at their entrails to find the love of God, because the Lamb of God has been slain for us already. He's done it for others. He will do it for us as well. May it be so, Jesus. Alleluia and Amen. On Friday, at think. On Sunday. Pennsylvania.